Evening, Dan. Evening, Omar. How you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? How's your week been? Doing all right. Yeah, doing okay. Just, um, yeah, enjoyed watching football the last few days. Good Liverpool result yesterday as well. I see we've got some real brains in the um, in the organisation with us today. Yeah, well, we might, might have to put him on the spot as well as it relates to title race and relegation and, and um, top four as well. Um, but yeah, we're joined, joined by Aurel, who um, is a data scientist within the the 21st group team and uh, I thought there is absolutely no one better um, to talk about uh, who we want to talk about today which is Erling Haaland. Um, so Aurel does a lot of the work we do in, in uh, does a lot of the data science work around the performance intelligence work that we do um, in football. So he is a person who looks at a lot of lists of players and a lot of performance data of players and, and can give us a, a view on uh, on how Haaland's uh, going to impact the city. So I thought I thought we'd dive into him and maybe get pick your brains a bit as well, Dan, on some of the contract stuff. If that sounds good. Well, I've got to be useful for something these days, so it's um, yeah, that'll be great. And it was interesting as well, just as an aside, because I found it I found it fascinating what Carragher said. I think it was probably about a week or so ago, around just as the news that um, Haaland broke that he, uh, the, the news that broke that Haaland had more or less signed for City was that actually you know how much better can City actually get? And I know that's one of the things that. Um, you guys are going to be discussing, but I found that an interesting bit. It's almost like, well, you know, City are already at such a high level in terms of performance and um, um, general capacity that actually, at what point do those very, very marginal incrementals make a big difference? So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that in due course as well. Yeah, I think that'll be a good, good point of debate. Um, but yeah, Aurel, um, so I know you've kind of looked deep into the numbers. I, interesting place to start, I think, would be just... Like Holland's super exciting as a player. Where where do our models rank him in world football and, and just generally actually historically in, in world football? Yeah, thanks so much. Hi everyone. Um glad to be back on the podcast for a third time. Um so yeah, kind of all things Holland. Um our models currently rank Holland as the fifth best a uh, fourth best outfield player globally at the minute. Um so just behind players such as Lewandowski, Kevin De Bruyne and Benzema. Um and interestingly, trying to look at strikers at their peak of the last 10 years using our model that ranks players globally on a single scale. It's interesting because he comes out about third or fourth. Um, so Lewandowski at Bayern Munich has been the best striker in the last 10 years. Luis Suarez, unsurprisingly, at Barcelona comes in at second and then himself and um, and Mbappe are about third and fourth. So again, he, he, despite just being 21 years old, he is um, you know one of the best strikers we've seen in the last decade or so. Yeah, he's freakishly good. I suppose the definite... Any- you know, with with him and Lewandowski, you can definitely say a kind of out and out strikers. I suppose Suarez and Mbappe kind of sometimes play through the middle, sometimes play out wide. So, like out and out, we're talking about someone who is one of the top two, top definitely top three strikers in the last ten years, which is pretty scary given how young he is. Um, so, give give us a view on his performance today. Like, how what are some of the numbers behind how well he's doing? How does that look in the Bundesliga? And how does that kind of um, you know look across across Europe? Yeah, I mean, this could this could take a while, so I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. But um, yeah, since joining Dortmund, Lewandowski's been more prolific. So if we look at non-penalty goals, um, Haaland scored 0.92 since joining. Lewandowski's on 1.01. So again, insane numbers, almost averaging a goal a game. Um, if we kind of, uh, to give a get, bit of context, if we look at Mbappe during that time since he's joined Dortmund, he's on 0.8. And players like Ronaldo and Messi are on about 0.63 and 0.58 respectively. So again, completely in the league of his own. 
and only bettered by, by Lewandowski. Um, also since joining Dortmund, he's got 86 goals in 89 matches, uh, 62 in 67 in the Bundesliga. Um, about 25% of Dortmund's goals since he's joined have been from Holland, so about a quarter of all their goals. So he's a massive contributor in terms of getting the ball in the back of the net. Um, when we look at kind of statistics in terms of league goals scored by 21, um, again, Holland's got a better number than Mbappe, Messi and Ronaldo. It's obviously important to remember that he has played in slightly weaker leagues. So there's a caveat to that. But I mean, if we then look at the Champions League, which is a, another tournament that Mbappe is kind of relished in, um, he's got the most goals for a player aged under 21. He had 23 in 19, so averaging more than a goal a game. Um, he's the fastest player to get 20 Champions League goals just in 14 games. Um, the next fastest to get to 20 Champions League goals was Harry Kane on 24. So, again, just completely unreal numbers. And then if we just look at this season, uh, non-penalty goals, non-penalty XG shots and touches in the penalty box. He's in the top 95 percentile for strikers. So, I mean, again, it looks like, I mean, yeah, he's kind of at the top of his game despite only being 21 and competing with kind of legends in the game already. Yeah, I think, I mean, they're kind of crazy numbers. Again, it's kind of the age thing, which which always astonishes me. Like, he's so he's so young. And um, we're seeing, I, we're chatting in the office actually in, in, about Nesson um, Alcaraz in, in tennis, who has just turned 19. Uh, whenever you have players like this, I think it just kind of gets you so excited about the potential that they could have. Um, and obviously, I suppose with Holland, it's not so much that he will get a huge amount better because he, he's already so good. He's already at levels that, the likes of Messi and Ronaldo were hitting at, at a similar age. Um, what I mean, what what can we read into XG? Because he's, um, I think he's overperformed it by a significant margin. Is that a sign that he might regress? He's like he's kind of run too hot, or, or is he the type of player that we might think that might be the type of player that might overachieve on XG for a long period of time? Because there's always that debate, isn't there, around the extent to which players regress back down to it, or are they someone like a Messi or even like a Son, who, who someone who's consistently outperforms their XG? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, actually. Um, and as you mentioned there at the end, there's a lot more players now that tend to kind of overperform their XG for a longer period of time. Son being a classic example of that, especially this season. Um, to some degree, it also shows that, you know, some players can be really clinical and kind of finishing pretty difficult chances. So that's also something to consider. But looking at his Bundesliga goals, so I mentioned before, he's got um, 62 goals in 67 matches. That's from an XG of uh, 49. So he's overachieved by about 12 uh, goals. But again, it's still staggering to kind of be that close in terms of XG, in terms of um, the raw output that he's still producing. Um, another thing to mention as well, which is, um, something we'll touch on a bit later on, but also he'll be playing in a team that generate a lot more chances um, as a whole, so Dortmund compared to Man City. Um, so that's also something to consider in terms of even if he is overperforming, if they are creating a, a much greater number of chances, then it's still very likely they will be finishing um, quite a lot of them. Yeah, make, makes sense. Um, so like I mentioned there, you know, obviously he's performing at an insane level. Um, I know we do projections of how good a player might become. What do the models say about Holland and how that compares historically, but also to other players at the moment. Yeah, again, it's an interesting, interesting one because um, yeah, historically, when you look at players like himself and Mbappe, you just kind of in your head imagine that they'll keep improving. But it's interesting because our models kind of state that he's at a very high level. He's likely to probably improve a little bit more in the next couple of years, but not significantly. So we wouldn't expect to see a massive change in his performance levels in the next few years. Um, so we estimate that he'll be the second best player next year behind Lewandowski, but of a very similar level. And then the best player in the world in two to three years alongside Mbappe. 
Um, interestingly, I, I suppose the key question a lot of people will ask is how close can he get to the levels reached by Messi and Ronaldo in the early 2010s? And um, we've got a number on that on about 6%. So it is possible, but um, it is it is quite unlikely um, at this stage. So, yeah, we expect him to improve, but not significantly. Um, and yeah, there is that key 6% there. He could he does have still has a chance to kind of reach those abnormal levels. Yeah, I think I think those who were just so freakish, weren't they? They're just at another level. I, I think even now it's kind of hard to fathom how good Messi and Ronaldo were. And I suppose again, just for, for those who we've spoken a little bit about our models on on this podcast before, but essentially it looks at um, performance by a player. You know, it's weighted towards more recent performance, but we'll generally take it on a slightly longer term basis, so about a couple of years or so. Uh, and we'll look at essentially the level at which they're playing at and their relative contribution um, to the team. Um, and I think what differentiated Messi and Ronaldo in the early 2010s was just like how long they were able to score and assist at you know between one and 1.5 goals per game, which is just kind of nuts, really. And, and we've we've noticed a slight drop off, I suppose, with Holland's goal scoring. I think I'm right in saying this year, but but even then, um, he's still performing at a pretty abnormal level, which is. Which is yeah frightening for Premier League defenders. So, so on that point, what what's he worth to Man City? Um, what what am I doing that he could contribute to the team? Yeah, I mean, kind of. I like to go back to that point that Dan mentioned earlier that uh, Harry was talking about recently. That how much better can um, Holland actually make Manchester City, given that they're one of the best teams, well, arguably the best team in the world right now, alongside Liverpool. But even looking historically over the last, you know, fourteen years, they're up there with um, the. You know the the Bayern Munich um, of the early two thousand and tens and the um, Barcelona, so they can't possibly get much better. You, you'd like to think so. Um, yeah, did a bit of digging and looking at F. Holland was to replace um, Gabriel Jesus, who's the only out and out striker at Manchester City at the minute um, up front over a whole season. What kind of points impact in the league um, would we kind of likely expect? Um, and it's about a point difference, which doesn't sound um, like a significant number, but I mean this season the the league could be decided by number. Um, but by a single point, sorry. Um, and also in 1819, famously, when um, it was also decided by a point. So it is marginal gains, but I think at that top level, the marginal gains is, uh, are what will make the difference at the end. Yeah, and I think the other point to make as well with, with City, um, if you think of their Champions League exits um, that they've had, it's not because of lack of goals. Like with Real Madrid, how many did, they, did they get, uh, what was it, five goals across the two legs? Um, they obviously went out, um, to Leon having scored, they've gone out to that Spurs game in, in 2019 where, what was it again, they, they got three goals across, three or four goals across the two legs. Um, you know, they haven't struggled for goals. Um, it's not, it's not the, the issue they've had. The issue they've had is, is probably defensively. Um, certainly in the Champions League, maybe less so domestically um, where they've just been incredible on both fronts. So um, the way I guess the model works is that it goes, well, how many more goals can you score? And actually, if you're already winning games, 3-0 the fourth goal actually isn't that valuable and yeah maybe you put the game to bed a bit earlier but but on the whole they're, they're just so good and so I think yeah it, it is frightening for, for defences to think about the impact Holland could have but but it's always a bit lower than what you might expect particularly for a team like Man City and I know you've not necessarily looked at this I maybe have Harrell but I imagine if you put Holland in a mid-table team like I don't know Crystal Palace or Aston Villa then um then maybe maybe that point difference would be more like in the kind of three to five point different range, and that might actually be an interesting thought experiment. What if what if uh, Erling Haaland played for Aston Villa uh, this weekend? What would what would Liverpool's um, title odds be? Um, but but on um, obviously you know people talk about the fact that Premier League is the hardest league in the world, which I think our models agree with. It is the the strongest league if you take the average quality of teams in the league. 
Uh, but what about the Bundesliga? You know, where where's it at, at the moment? How easy or hard is it to get goals in that league? And and how how might that transition look like to the Premier League? Yeah, it's, it's another interesting one. So we currently rate um, on our World Super League, which rates teams globally on a single scale, the Bundesliga as a second most competitive league. It's roughly the same as La Liga, with the Premier League being the strongest. Um, and Dortmund on our World Super League are about the 17th best team, so about the same level as Arsenal today. Um, so he scored 22 um, league goals this season. If we uh, look at the um, the quality of the defence that he'd faced in the Bundesliga and compare that to the Premier League, we're able to kind of cha- um, calculate an exchange rate. So how much is one goal worth in the Premier League um, compared to the Bundesliga? And, and the rate's about 1 to 0.9. So he's 22 goals in the Bundesliga would translate to about roughly 19 19 goals um, in in the Premier League. So, again, um, it'd be a slight drop-off. But, again, I mentioned before that we have to remember that City create a lot more chances. They average about 14 shots per game compared to Dortmund's 9.5. City average also 1.7 xG in the league uh, per game. Dortmund about 1.3. So, um, despite play, you know, he's going to be playing tougher opposition, but also in a team that, you know, have the ball more often and are likely to create more chances for him. Yeah, and I think, yeah, he's he's scored goals in the Champions League, hasn't he? And, and the average quality team in the Champions League is of a higher quality than the average team in the Premier League. And yeah, you do get a few teams that are kind of relegation Premier League quality, maybe even lower. But but on the whole, he's, he's managed to get goals against all levels of opposition. So, you know, if, if whilst there is a step up from the Bundesliga, he's been doing it at that at top levels and, and in international football as well, where, again, occasionally you do play Premier League quality teams. So, yeah, it, it, I, I think... He, there probably wasn't that much doubt about how he'd be able to move across. And we've seen like plenty of players come across from Germany in the last, in particular in the last five years or so and do really, really well. So I don't think there's, there's too much concerns about that um, in terms of just kind of pure quality, but, but stylistically there's, there's obviously the quality fit, which we think he'll meet stylistically. What, what kind of differences might Dortmund and, and City have? Because they are, you know, somewhat different teams in the way that they play. Yeah, stylistically. So I suppose there's two differences, one at a team level and then another at a play level in comparison to the strikers that City have or the striker, I should say. So um, kind of, you know, keeping it quite simple at the minute. So looking at possession, City average about 68% possession uh, in the league and they have done for for a while now. Uh, Dortmund actually, you know, have a fair amount of the ball. They average about 59% of possession as well. Um, but if you look at Holland's kind of completed passes in the final third, it's only about 6.6. He's not involved in build-up play to the same level as City attackers. So, for instance, Gabriel Jesus attempts um, 17 passes in the final third, and that's actually the lowest of City attackers. So players like Bernardo Silva, Foden and so on that sometimes tend to fill in in that false nine position, play uh, over 20 passes in the final third per game on average. So there will definitely need to be some sort of adaption um, from him if that's something that Guardiola requires that he um, gets involved in build-up play more often, um, given his numbers historically. Um, I mentioned the point earlier around shots and XG. So again, I'll kind of raise it again, that City at 14 shots per game compared to 9.5 by Dortmund. So um, he's likely to get more opportunities um, in and around the box and also I think one of the key things that he might be able to offer if we're talking about marginal gains is um, City often play against teams who are kind of defend quite deep and find it sometimes tricky to kind of break teams down and he also offers an area of threat being around six foot four um, and whilst playing at Dortmund uh, they'd cross it into the box a lot more often so about over nine, uh, 9.2 per game City only 6.1 um, and if we look at his headers attempted, um, it's about 0.64 um, per game. And someone like the average striker in the um, league, the Premier League is about 0.54. And that's also double Gabriel Jesus. So he does offer that kind of um, aerial threat ability where, you know, if City are struggling to kind of break a team down, um, 
if they get more crosses than the box, he's much more likely to get onto the end of them compared to a Gabriel Jesus. Um, and, and then finally, just defensively, um, again, I think there's been a lot of videos of people seeing Holland lose the ball and then kind of walk back because he has that luxury of being at Dortmund, um, of being so good. Whereas at City, I don't think that will kind of be accepted as much. So um, he's been kind of pressing at a lower rate than Gabriel Jesus. And also, if you look at his tackles, he hardly tackles at all in a game, almost averaging zero tackles. All of City's attackers average more than one per game. So there'll definitely need to be a change in terms of how he's trying to uh, win a ball back for his team when they don't have it, which tends to be not very often. So, um, yeah, they're probably the key, the key points, I think. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting flag, that on the defensive uh, aspect, because it's something that, you know, when we look at Liverpool and, and praise Liverpool's recruitment over the last five or six years, I think the one common theme that everyone says is they've recruited to their style and and not just attacking, but they've recruited players who are really good defensively. Um, so, you know, Diaz is another player. You just watch him. The moment he loses the ball and counter-presses is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, you know, City players, uh, you know, Guardiola's obviously an incredible coach, but he does demand quite a lot from from his players. And I think if in six months' time we're, we're sitting here thinking, why is Holland not quite fit into the Premier League, which is which is a possibility. I think we might come back to these numbers here and go, well, actually, he wasn't really showing City style of play, um, you know, at, at Dortmund and therefore would have, you know, needed to adapt. So it's interesting because obviously we often associate Dortmund with, with heavy metal football. I know it's, you know, it's past the time of clock, but, but obviously um, Holland wasn't kind of fundamental to that. Uh, and then almost to uh, go on, Dan, I can see you, see you come off mute there. Sorry, I was just going to say one thing as well, and I don't know, um, again, no one's put on spot, but it just had this thought, which was, you know, we were talking last summer about City's chase for Harry Kane. Um, now Kane reportedly having two years left on his deal rather than three, obviously a year older. And Haaland being the, the new, not necessarily the new kid on the block, but obviously the, the kid on the block that, that City wants. just wonder whether, you know, it, it's obviously easy or harder, I'm not quite sure the answer, to have, you know, top striking targets. And in a perfect world, I wondered whether... Kane still fit, possibly fits better into Guardiola's model as a striker rather than Haaland. And it may simply be, for whatever reason, too tough a negotiating position that Levy, Daniel Levy continues to put on or the amount of money that they want um, for Kane about whether, you know, moving away from Kane in one season, even though he might possibly be available, or the fact simply that Haaland was available at a, a relatively reasonable price, at least in terms of transfer fee um, and an agent commission, which we'll come on to, whether that played any part in things. Um, so it's just maybe just an open question around exactly that point, which is, Haaland's not used to doing a lot of the things that City um, strikers absolutely have to do. And whether actually the whole point that City prefer not to have strikers or play strikers out wide or other positions means actually City are possibly changing their style and system and setup a little bit, or whether in fact Haaland's going to have to learn on the job pretty quickly. Yeah, I think uh, it'll be, yeah, I, it was, he's definitely going to have to learn on the job, I think, I'd say, and whether City changed. I mean, the, the fact is, I think. I say the fact is, I, 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 this would be another interesting question. Who, who, who do you think will be uh, at City longer, as in from the point of this summer, that Guardiola or uh, Holland? Because actually, maybe the the punt that City are making is that, you know, maybe Guardiola in two, three, four years will will decide that you know he, he's done all he can at City or whatever, and maybe wins the Champions League. But Holland might be there for ten years, and actually, that's the kind of talent that you would want around for ten years, even if you know, initially in the early years doesn't fit the playing style. So that might may have gone into the calculation as well. 
Um, just to wrap up, uh, wrap up on the kind of performance aspects, maybe segue as well into, into some of Dan's stuff. He's obviously earning or reportedly earning a lot of money. Was it something like three hundred seventy, three hundred eighty thousand pounds a week? I know it's kind of difficult with the top players to really assess their value, but is that is that a fair? Way? Is that the going rate for a player of, of Holland's quality, Ralph? Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I think it's on about three hundred seventy-five thousand, so it's probably um, considerably more than he was getting at um, Dortmund. But um, yeah, you, you mentioned that point around fair wage there. So we have a model that basically tries to estimate what a player's fair wage is using historical wage data um, and looking at players' performance level, what league they're playing in, how old they are, um, what position they are playing in, and so on. Um, and we estimate that it should be around on around three hundred twenty thousand a week, roughly. So he's being paid slightly more um, th- th- than that. But again, he should be paid. Um, at, you know, what one of the elite players in the world deserves to kind of be earning above three hundred thousand in today's world. And I know you guys spoke about Salah recently, and um, yeah, uh, players of their quality is kind of uh, typical and normal now to see that they're being paid in and around three hundred fifty thousand a week. So our model kind of aligns with that reason uh, reasonably well. Yeah, uh, and. Obviously, the other factor, Dan, is that this is a, a free transfer. Well, sorry, not free transfer, but a, but a reduced transfer due to the release clause. I mean, it's been really interesting the dynamics of of this deal um, in terms of you know the posturing, but also you know when you do the deal, what the release clause is, how how clubs respond to that. What, what's what's really stood out to you in terms of um, how this has been kind of managed from the Holland perspective, but also potentially from from the Dortmund and Man City perspective as well. Yeah, I think there's loads of um, plots and subplots. Because if you remember when Haaland, I think, went from Red Bull to uh, Dortmund, there was lots of reported interest in him, especially from Manchester United. And I think one of the, the big stumbling blocks that United had was Riola's insistence at the time that um, there was going to be a relatively obtainable um, release clause. Um, and obviously Man United didn't see themselves as a stepping stone to somewhere else. And that was looked like a, you know, a red flag, effectively. Um so you, you can almost see what's happened as a result. And obviously, this is a very you know, difficult, multifaceted negotiation, even at that first stage into Dortmund. But Dortmund sort of have played by the rules of the game, really, which is you get a you know, fantastic, possibly generational talent for two or three seasons, um, you know, pay him well, but not probably top level, with the understanding that they're still, they're still going to make some good money on um, the transfer and the resale. And so you have that time now where that clause is being activated. And again, the subplot there is apparently what was reported in The Athletic. I think it was David Ornstein saying that actually uh, Riola for quite some time was publicising that the release clause was higher than it actually was, um, which I'm not sure there's a, a, a you know, rationale or otherwise for that, but simply might be that when the clubs then realised the release clause wasn't quite as high and they put budget in for budgeting for those amounts, that possibly leaves more money on the table for the other parts um, of the deal. And so here we are um, with a release clause um, with, um, unfortunately and tragically, Riola passing away in the weeks leading up to um, the deal. And, um, you know, reported 51, I think, million pounds transfer fee, a reported 30 million pounds agent commission split between father and agency. And, you know, we were talking beforehand, um, Omar, about the fact that that, that could be almost as an outlier, as an outlier of an outlier, probably one of the most significant transfer deals in that a transfer fee uh, at, a ve- at a very high level 
is aligned to what the commission payments might be. And again, we talked about why that might be, which is City obviously feel they're getting significant value for money and an undervalued asset because of the way that the release clause was negotiated. And then as a result, happy to pay by way of, you know, the overarching liability in amount, which maybe equates to £80 million in terms of transfer fee in total. And then obviously a significant um, premium in terms of wages and signing on and loyalty bonuses and um, yeah, other types of bonuses as a result. So, you know, I... Uh, uh, yeah, had got quite a bit of stick on Twitter actually when I when I sort of was not necessarily defending the agents that done the deal, but more or less saying it's still a very good deal for City, and everyone else saying, well, it's absolutely disgraceful that you know agents should be making so much money. And I understand the the sentiment, but um, in the cold light of day, you know, it's effectively still to a degree. Maybe that might be not the case with Harland, um, you know, a buyer's market, and you know, in the end, City were more than happy to stump up the amounts in order to get that deal over the line. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it's. Yeah, the, the the criticism taking money out of the game, as we, we've discussed before, obviously, and we try to provide a perspective um, on on our chats around um, you know the value that agents do have and, and where things go right, and also where things go wrong. But taking money out of the game, you know, it's it's an easy criticism, but in, you know, agents are also adding values in certain aspects of the game. So um, it's yeah. It's a, it's a nuance, nuance point. I think that's exactly right. And if I just say just one very brief thing as well, which is then, yeah, I got you could um, uh, Didi Haman, who's, you know, one of the legends of the Liverpool teams back in the, the 90s, I think it would be now. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, his point was money out of the game. But I think just as you said, um, the money out of the game argument only usually holds firm when it comes to agents, obviously making hugely significant numbers, but it's never usually the same with players taking money out of the game in wages, chief executives taking money out of the game or, or otherwise. So I think it can sometimes be a tad, I'm always a bit a tad sceptical of that approach. But as we talked about in other um, podcasts as well on this, you know, this could be one of the last, you know, truly monumental deals if FIFA have their way um, in terms of the uh, agents regulations and obviously the potential commission caps that happen as a result. So, um, yeah, watch this space on, on that side of things too. So I, I, let's finish with a prediction, as we like you, but I'm going to make a, a long-term prediction, and I'm going to ask both of you, and I'll give my view as well, but um, first season, so next season, 22-23 season, how many uh, league goals will Erling Haaland score for Man City? And let's keep increase the jeopardy, well, not increase the jeopardy, but keep the jeopardy in there with, you know, we don't know how, how many penalties he's going to take and so on, but how many league goals do we think he's going to score next season? I'll start, I'll start with you, Dan. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> um, I think if he takes penalties, which could, could be a distinct possibility, um, then I would I would be really surprised if he's not uh, scoring more than twenty league goals. So I'm I'm going to go twenty one league goals next season. Errol, yeah, I mean Dan's kind of stolen my answer there. I was going to try to play it safe and say it above twenty, but uh, let me just go slightly higher, say twenty two. <laughs> Probably not by one. Yeah. That's not how this works. You don't you don't get a prize, do you? Playing it tactically, I, I'm not going to go uh, 22 or 23. Um, I, I think he will get. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, you're both close to what I was going to say. Uh, I think you'll get 25. Let's go with that. Um, and so we'll make a note of these. We'll revisit revisit this in uh, in pretty much 12 months' time because that's uh, that's when the season will be ending and um, and we'd have had a, a full season of uh, Erling Haaland in the Premier League. Well, thanks, thanks both. Arel, special thank you because that was that was super interesting, and I think uh, hopefully those listening in and those listening back, um, yeah, we'll, we'll find the numbers interesting and, and point out some of the kind of flags and challenges uh, for Holland uh, next season. And, and thanks as ever, Dan. Great work, Arel. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Carell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.